with me, please, in your copy of God's Word to Proverbs chapter 3. Proverbs chapter 3. We're just looking at one verse this morning. Everybody said amen. <laughs> uh, we're looking at one verse, just uh, Proverbs 3, verse 9. It says, Honor Yahweh from your wealth and from the first of all your produce. The title of this sermon is Honoring God. Honoring God. I desire this morning that very straightforward, that you would just obey the command here, that you would honor God with your money, that you would honor God with your money. And we'll just, we'll talk about how do you do that uh, this morning. But there's a Puritan by the name of Thomas Case who said or wrote that prosperity, prosperity is the nurse of atheism. Prosperity is the nurse of atheism. What does he mean by that? He means that when things are going well, especially in an unbeliever's life, when they have all that they supposedly could want or need materially, and they're prospering with money and things and life in general, uh, then they have no need, at least they think, they have no need of a God. Uh, way back, years ago, I was praying and thinking about planning a church. And there is a specific, as I was doing some research, I noticed an interesting uh, reality that uh, we have some very affluent, I mean, the Bay Area in and of itself is pretty affluent. It, it, I mean, y'all might not feel rich, but you're, you're rich by the world's standards. You're very wealthy. The fact that you can pay the bills in living in this area means that you're doing well. Um, but even beyond that, even within the Bay Area, there's, there are some towns and some cities especially that are especially affluent. Uh, I don't need to go through the names, but I am sure a list of a few that are close by and maybe within an hour drive from here, uh, are those are where the rich people go, right? And that's where we go when we want to go and have a nice night on the town, a nice date, right? We go to those towns. Uh, we don't necessarily go to just around the corner in our backyard, uh, we go to those nice towns, right? Those nice, fancy, pretty cities where it's clean. <laughs> uh, or, uh, yeah, if you want to go and go trick-or-treating or go w walk around and, and look at Christmas lights, you go to those neighborhoods, right? You don't go to the hood and walk around the hood to look at Christmas lights. I've, I, I noticed that in those cities, especially when it's a, a, a larger city, there, there, is, there were hardly any churches in those cities. Those places were very dark, dark places. And you wouldn't think so if you go there, especially to go look at the Christmas lights or go shopping or whatever else 
It might be, go there on a nice date night. You wouldn't think this is a dark, dark place because it seems so nice. Uh, but, but Thomas' case reminds us that there's a reason why there's no light of a church in those neighborhoods. It's because prosperity is the nurse of atheism. They have their money. They have their God. It's, it's money. So they don't need the God of the Bible, at least they don't think, because they have all that they could ever need. Now, the, the sad reality is that some who even profess to be Christians live like practical atheists. They get their paycheck, and they go pay their rent, buy their groceries. But then beyond that, they go to Chick-fil-A, they go to Starbucks, they go to the mall, they scroll on Amazon, and they fill up their basket with their quote-unquote needs while not really giving much of a thought to God or His kingdom. They feed their own needs and desires, nursing the sin of atheism in their own hearts. I ask you this morning, is that a pattern in your life? Or can it become a pattern in your life? Where you say that you love the Lord, you say that you're a believer, uh, but practically speaking, uh, you're an atheist. When it comes to, especially when it comes to your money and the way you spend your money, does God have a say in that? Does he have a part of your wealth? Does he have a place in your pocketbook? In contrast to this mindset of practical atheism, God calls his people to honor him First and foremost. Now, it's, it's not about God needing your money. If you went to a community group this week, there is a question, does God need your money? And it's no. He doesn't need you, Christian. He doesn't need you or your money. The fact is, he allows you to be part of his kingdom and to contribute to his work. You get to Give him your money. He doesn't need you. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills, the psalmist says. So he's not begging you as if, uh, you know, the, the kingdom just can't go on without your contribution. No, God is rich. He doesn't need us. But he works through us. It's not about God needing your money. It's about God deserving your honor. That's what we want to look at this morning. God doesn't need your honor. God doesn't need your money, but he deserves your honor. So this morning we want to look at how to honor God. You honor God with fear, you honor him with faith, and you honor him with your foremost. You honor God with fear, you honor God with faith, and you honor him with your foremost. First of all, honor with fear. You honor the Lord with fear. God commands us, even as Christians, to fear Him. The fear of God is the beginning of knowledge. That's the theme of the book of Proverbs. It is good for Christians to fear God. 
not to tremble and worry if, if he's going to wipe them out, but to have a healthy dose of fear, of reverence and awe and respect. That respect is a trivial word nowadays, but it is a respect that is due the divine being of God. Proverbs uh, 3, it, it, we're, we're looking at verse 9, but if you look at verse 7, it says, Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear Yahweh and turn away from evil. The, the command here is to fear Yahweh. Fear the I am. Fear the Lord. And what's interesting is that uh, the beginning of verse 7 uh, gives us one example of, of what it means to not fear God. Notice again, do not be wise in your own eyes. The, the alternative of being wise to your own, in your own eyes is to fear God. Or vice versa. The, the opposite of fearing God is being wise in your own eyes. The phrase, in your own eyes, has the idea of in your own opinion. In your own opinion. So this verse is telling us not to be a know-it-all individualist who does things his own way. That's what that means. Don't be wise in your own eyes. Don't be a know-it-all. Don't be an individualist. Don't be one who does things your way. That is the opposite of fearing God. So fearing God means I don't know it all. I'm humble before Him. It means I am not an individualist. I'm not autonomous. I am dependent on God. And fearing God means uh, I don't do things my own way. I go to God and ask Him how He would like me to live my life. I take orders from another. Romans 12, 16 commands us, do not be wise in your own mind. Do not be wise in your own mind. Romans 12, 16. This is all over Scripture. It's because God knows our hearts. He knows our default is to think too much of ourselves. Now the opposite of that, pride and, and self-sufficiency and know-it-all attitude and, and I call my own shots and live life my own way, is a biblical fear of God. Biblical fear of God is to honor Him and respect Him as your creator and judge. To respect Him and honor Him as creator and judge. It is to recognize Him, acknowledge Him as the Almighty God and yourself as a lowly created being of His. It is to acknowledge the fact that he owns you by sheer fact of being your maker. It is to have the mindset, you're God, I'm not. You call the shots, I don't. You lead, I follow. You command, I obey. That's what it means to fear God. And the fear of God is seen first in repentance. 
seen first in repentance. Again, verse 7, Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear Yahweh and turn away from evil. So the first fruit of a fear of God, when someone first fears God at the point of salvation, is repentance. That's what it looks like. It is coming to grips with the reality, I've been doing it all wrong. And I don't want to do that. I want to turn away from self and sin and turn to God. It is to turn away from evil. Repentance is to turn away from sin, from evil, and self. Faith is to turn towards God through Christ. So that's what conversion is. It is uh, repentance and faith. Christ called the multitudes to repent and believe. The apostles did the same. This is what is required of every man, woman, and child. To come to Christ in repentance and faith. You want to know how to become a Christian? Let me simplify it for you. Repent and believe. That's all you need to do. Repent and believe. And repentance and belief or faith, they are not acts. They are mindsets. It it is a shifting of your perspective. Uh, It results in acts. It results in a life change. But it is not the act and the change itself. It brings it about. This is what God calls you to do this morning if you do not know him in salvation. If you're not a Christian this morning, this is what you must do to become a Christian. Repent. Turn away from sin, evil, and self, and turn towards God through Christ, believing on Christ for your salvation. And the call, it's a kind command. It's a kind call. It's a generous call because he's calling you to turn away from that sin that is damaging your soul and that evil that is draining you of the joy of life. Uh, He says in verse 7, again, do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear Yahweh and turn away from evil. And notice the result, verse 8, it will be healing to your body and refreshment to your bones. See, the result of sin is that your soul is damaged, depraved, diseased, and dead. But if you repent and turn to Christ, he says, it will be healing to your body and refreshment to your bones. How is this possible? Isaiah 53, right? Surely our griefs he himself bore. Our sorrows he carried, yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening of our, for our peace fell upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. It's through the sacrifice, a death, burial and resurrection of Christ, where your soul can be healed. Oh, dear sinner, are you tired of the ruin and destruction and 
and grief that comes along with your sin? Are you tired of yourself and your waywardness? Are you exhausted from the grief and the guilt that is a result of your sinfulness and rebellion against your Creator? Christ comes to you and He says in Matthew 11, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Dear unbeliever, if you don't know Christ this way, he says, come to him today. Come to him this morning, even now, and find rest in him. You've been trying to get the favor of God, earn the favor of God on your own. It's exhausting because you're never good enough. Come to him. He'll, he'll deliver you of that bondage. Are, are you exhausted and weary from the disappointments and, and, and the, the weight of this world and life itself? Christ says, come to me. I'll give you rest. You don't have to bear the guilt of your burden anymore. I've said this before, what you're doing, if you refuse to come to Christ, what you're doing is you are carrying in your hands this heavy, heavy load of guilt for your sins, and you're trying to somehow offload this guilt of sin and and the responsibility of, of earning the favor of God, and it's just a heavy, heavy load, and you can't bear it. You're your arms shake and your knees buckle under the weight. And Christ says, come here. Come here to me. Give me that. And be delivered. And I'll give you another yoke. I'll give you another burden. But it's light and it's easy. Because the yoke is my love and my grace. And the burden is living for me. And I'm a kind and good shepherd. I am a generous Lord. I am a humble master. He says, come to me and find that rest. Maybe you've been trying to find that rest in your money. God says, cast aside your love for things and possessions and money and grasp a hold of Christ as you cry out, I choose to love you exclusively. Now, the hard heart, the unrepentant sinner who refuses this, hears that and says, I can't do that. I won't do that. It's going to cost me everything. You're right. It will cost you everything. But Proverbs 15, 16 says, Better is a little with the fear of Yahweh than great treasure and turmoil with it. God's given you an option this morning, dear unbeliever. You can have God and maybe a little in this world. Or you can have everything that this world has to give, but great turmoil with it. It's up to you. It's up to you. you must choose. One author says, uh, Speaking to believers, make the Lord famous and prominent 
by means of your wealth. Use your money to increase his prestige in your world. Have you forgotten, Christian, your relationship with your God? That he calls the shots and you live in a biblical fear of him. That you say, you tell me what to do with my money, God. Or have you used your money, instead of using your money to honor God, you've used it to honor yourself. The Lord calls you to repent of that. And to make him famous, make him prominent in this world by means of your wealth. So honor God with fear. Secondly, honor God with faith. Honor God with faith. Again, going to the context of this verse. Again, uh, Proverbs 3.9 says, Honor Yahweh from your wealth and from the first of all your produce. But back in verse 5, it said, Trust in Yahweh with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. We are commanded to trust the Lord. We are called to have a childlike faith and trust in our God. And this is actually what the whole uh, uh, proverb, this, this chapter, has been speaking about. Uh, the root of that trust in God is found in verses 1 through 4, in the teaching of God. My son, do not forget my law, but let your heart guard my commandments. For length of days and years of life and peace they will add to you. Do not let loving kindness and truth forsake you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. So you will find favor and good insight in the eyes of God and man. So the first uh, root, the, the root of your trust in God, your faith in him, is in his truth, his teaching, his word. And the proof of our faith is seen in a few things. Verse 3, it's seen in a devotion to the teaching of God. Verse 5, it's seen in a distrust of self. Verse 7, it's seen in a turning away from evil. And verse 9, it's seen in giving to him from your wealth. And then in verse 11, later on, it's faith in God is seen even in receiving his discipline of us. To have faith is to trust. The word for faith here, it was used for leaning on something. But it's not a nonchalant leaning, it's specific. It's to lean on something to support all your weight. Now, I, 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 um, my, my family laughs at me, but I like these shows where I get to watch people do something I would never do. So uh, I, I watch a, a show on uh, gold mining. And it's, it's just dorky and it's geeky, but it's, it's, it's clean and, and uh, it's, it's hard to find a clean show nowadays. So I'll take what I can get. But I do enjoy watching people do things I would never dare to do. One of the things that they did on this show was they had to cross this, this um, uh, 200-foot... Uh, ravine where there's a stream, a river flowing at the bottom and you have two mountain cliffs on either side of this river. 
And they have to get from one side to the other to get the gold. And so uh, they set up a zip line, and every day, this is their commute to work every day, they connect and, and latch on uh, to that zip line, that, that steel cable that goes across the ravine, and they just walk off the cliff. Now, you thought your commute was bad. <laughs> and that's a picture of faith. They step out off the cliff, trusting that the harness and the cable will hold them. And they won't plummet to their death. That's faith. It's not, uh, it's not, it, there's no halfway with this, right? You can't halfway trust the zip line, you, you'll die. It's all of their weight is placed on it. Now, this faith that is called for in the Bible is a faith in God. To place all of your weight, all of the weight of your life and your eternity, even your very soul, to place everything upon Him. It's, it's a complete and total faith. And this, this kind of faith is first exercised in the sinner's first trusting of Christ for his or her salvation. It is coming to terms with the reality, I cannot get to heaven on my own. I am, my destiny is the judgment and wrath of God for all eternity because of my sin. And the only person that can deliver me out of that danger of the wrath of God and deliver me into the safety of heaven and salvation is Christ. And so I place all of my, myself upon him. I entrust all of my salvation, all of my soul on Christ and his work on the cross. And that's the first step. But Christian, you are called to faith as well. And as a believer, a simple test of your faith in God is what you do with your money. Verse 9 says, to honor God from your wealth. Now, some translations might have honor God with your wealth. That is a wrong translation. And some translate this and, and, and interpret it with the with preposition, honor God with your wealth, and they try and get out of giving God money by saying, it just says with, not from. As if I can keep all my money and use it for good, ethical things, right? I, I can use it for good and ethical, right things, like paying my electric bill and buying my family groceries. You know, as long as I do that, I'm using my money to show honor to God. I'm honoring Him with my money. But that's not the word. The word, the preposition, is the Hebrew min, which means from or out of. And especially taken with the next verse, if you notice the next verse, so your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will burst with new wine. If we take that in context, it's the idea of taking out of your barn or out of your vats to give to the Lord. 
The idea is your wealth is the source, and out of that source of your wealth, out of that comes some of that wealth as a demonstration of honor to God. One author wrote, he gets a cut from my wealth, a part, excuse me, I part with some of my money for his sake, I give it away for his sake. Now, again, God doesn't need your money. He deserves your honor. And that's why he says, honor Yahweh from your wealth. This is about honor to God. Now, if we do not learn to give, it will result in lack. Proverbs eleven twenty four. There is one who holds back what is rightly due, and yet results only in want. So maybe you think, well, I can't give. Things are so tight right now. Um, to which I would say, maybe the reason you feel like you can't give is because you don't give. Maybe the reason while you are in want is because you are not generous. God will not be mocked. He, he places these principles in the word to exercise his rule and his authority over us. You see, a, a lack of faith, a lack of faith or trust in God is shown, again, verse 5, in the second half of verse 5. Do not lean on your own understanding. You see, are, are you just not giving because you don't see how it can work? You're leaning on your own understanding. Now, saving money is good and right. It's a, principle, it's a biblical principle. But it becomes wrong when your security is in your savings and not in God, your provider. It's a hard issue. Same thing as last week. And Bruce Walke, uh, probably the best commentator on Proverbs, he says, One is a fool to rely on his thimble of knowledge before God's vast ocean of knowledge. Are you not giving because in your thimble full of knowledge it just doesn't add up? Well, God says if you give, it will be provided to you. Trust His vast ocean of knowledge. Your perspective, your understanding is limited. His is vast. He knows, He sees the big picture, Christian. And if he tells you to do something, he will provide for you to do it. He does not give his children commands only to set them up to fail. He's a kind and good father. Now, if we give generously to the church and other needs, God will see to it that we always have enough. Again, verse 10. So your barns will be filled with plenty, and your vats will burst with new wine. Now we, we see this verse used in selfish ways. Uh, 
in churches all around us. But this verse does not promise health, wealth, and prosperity. Matthew Henry uh, comments on verse 10, and I think it's helpful. He says, he does not say, when he says your, uh, your barns and your vats, he, 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 uh, uh, Matthew Henry says, he does not say thy bags, but thy barns. Not thy wardrobe replenished, but the vats. God shall bless thee with, with an increase of that which is for use, not for show or ornament. What does that mean? He doesn't say, this verse isn't saying that if you sow a seed of money, then God will give you a harvest of fancy cars, big houses, or flashy clothes. It's not what these verses mean and others like it. No. He simply promises that all your needs will be met. And it will be met in, in such abundance. God will provide your necessities in such an abundance, you'll have some more left over to give away. That's what he's saying. In fact, the, the biblical teaching of this is that God will reward those who are generous with more so that they will have more to be generous with. As, as Paul says, God will see to it that we always have all sufficiency in all things, uh, that, that all things may abound to every good work. Why has God prospered you, Christian? And so that you would have, an, you would be abounding in every good work. That's why you're doing so well. He does not make his Christians rich so that they will hoard riches and treasures on this earth. He, he is generous with his children so that they will wisely store up for themselves treasures in heaven, as we saw last week. What will happen is we will become a trusted channel for Christ to minister to others with. Again, Bruce Walkie says, The wise trust the Lord. They are confident that as they fulfill their obligations, He will uphold His own in His own time and in his own way. If you obey God, God will honor that. It may not be in a new car, but he'll provide for you. So the call here is to trust God entirely. Your security must rest on the Lord. Proverbs 9, 6. Um, Proverbs 9, Six says, forsake your simplicity and live and step into the way of understanding. It, it, he reminds us to acknowledge God, to, to know him personally. And in chapter three, in our chapter, verse six as well, in all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make your paths straight. 
Christian, you are called to acknowledge God, to know him personally, to live a life that is the opposite of the practical atheist, to live a life that acknowledges the reality and the relationship you have with God. It's the opposite of atheism. And an intimate relationship with Yahweh results in him taking care of you. And it also results in your ever-growing trust in him. You see, the point is that you want to get to the mindset of the writer of Proverbs. In Proverbs 30, verse 8 and 9, it says, Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is my portion, lest I be full and deny you. And say, who is Yahweh? See the atheism there? Or lest I be impoverished and steal and profane the name of my God. Are you, have you learned to be content, Christian? Or are you seeking more and more riches, thinking that if I just have that next thing, then I can rest, then I can be happy. Then, I can, then I can, my soul can be at ease. No, your soul needs to find its rest and its trust and its security in God. So you honor Him with that faith. No. God calls you to joyfully give from what He has provided in order to be used for His purposes in the church and for the spread of the gospel. And the one way you do this is by honoring him with your foremost. Number three, honor with your foremost. Again, Proverbs 3, verse 9. Honor Yahweh, with, excuse me, honor Yahweh from your wealth and from the first of all your produce. Before we get into the, what, what it means to um, honor God with the, with the foremost, with the first fruits, I think I should clarify what the Bible means when it commands us to honor God. What does it mean, honor Yahweh, honor God? The word honor comes from the word kavod, which means to be heavy or weighty. It's often used to describe someone who is very important. Uh, meaning that person is valued. He has a social weight. He has clout, prominence. Now, kavod, where our word comes from, kavod is translated in the Bible as glory. So to honor God is to give him the glory or the value that he deserves. So ask yourself, what? Does God deserve? Nothing will do but your first and your best. The first and the best, or your foremost. So within that word foremost, my, my, my point is, and the point of the, of the word, the first fruit, is first and best. It's both, first and best. Now, since the Old Testament... God's people have been commanded to give the Lord their first and their best. Whether it was the first of their produce, the first of the harvest, or the best uh, animal for sacrifice. For us as New Testament believers, 
the call, the command is to honor God with your first and best attentions, with your first and best thoughts, your first and best affections, plans, priorities, energy, time, effort, or money. He is worthy of your foremost in all aspects of life. So it's not just the only way you can honor God is with your first and best of your money. It's just one part, one way of the multitude of ways that you are commanded to honor God. But what does this mean specifically? Specifically, when it comes to this command, honor God from your wealth, from the first of your produce. What does that mean? Well, for us, this means that whatever is given to God, whatever your giving is, it is to be set aside ahead of time. 1 Corinthians 16.2, on the first day of every week, each one of you is to set something aside, saving whatever he has, pros- has prospered so that no collections be made when I come. Amen. So practically, this is where we get into the nuts and bolts. Practically, what, what do you do when you get paid, Christian? Whatever you do when you first get paid shows who comes first in your mind and heart. It shows what or who you really honor. What and who you really want to glorify. What and who you really value. This means that giving God your first and foremost means that God gets the position or the priority of first place when it comes to your finances. So what does that mean? Above retirement, above health care, above rent, above groceries, above taxes, God comes first. Practically, this means that as you pray and think about how much you give to the Lord, and I don't know that amount, I don't want to, but as you decide this between, within your household and between your household and God, as you think about this, look at the gross of your income, not the net of your income. Because God gave you the gross. And part of that gross on your paycheck goes to taxes, goes to health care, goes to this and that, retirement and everything else. But all of those are part of God's provision. And he says, give me out of all of it, the first fruit of all. I come before the U.S. government, God says. I come before your retirement or your health care. It doesn't mean that you don't pay to Caesar what is due to Caesar. It means that as you think about how much you give, the perspective is God gave me all of this, and these people got theirs. God gave me all, this whole pie. I give him a slice of the whole pie, not just what's left over of the pie. Does that make sense? 
You don't wait for the government to take theirs, your retirement to take its, and your health care to, to be taken out, and then see, okay, let's see what I have left for God out of what's left over. Even there, you're giving God what's left over. It's not, by definition, first. Giving God the foremost, the first, and the best. This means that you decide how much you will give to God before you spend your money on any other thing. Do not first set aside money for rent, groceries, clothes, or whatever else, and then give God whatever is left over. So practically, when, when you write out your monthly budget, and I would encourage you to do that, uh, it's just being a good steward of what God has given you. As you write out your monthly budget, after that top line of income, everything that comes in, the next line of expenses, the first line, is giving. That needs to be your mindset. Out of all of this, how much would I give the Lord? Don't work through the week. Don't, don't just uh, you know, get your paycheck and spend it on all this other stuff, your, your quote-unquote needs, and then Sunday comes around and it's, oh yeah, i got to give. You're, you're, you're giving God an afterthought. You're giving Him the leftovers. Give him first place in your mind. Give him first place in this honor. Now, what about the amount, right? Because everybody asks that. How much do I give? Is there a percentage that the Christian is required to give? No. No. Now, some will look back at the Old Testament and say that you know, Christians have to give 10% because that's, uh, that was, you know, the, the offering that was given. I would say it's pr- that 10% of your gross income is probably a good beginning guide to your giving. It's, it, think of it as the training wheels for your giving. That is, it's, it's a good reference point. But it's not a law that you must obey. I want to be very clear on that. I would argue, though, that 95% of people are able to give 10% of their gross income to the Lord. Because, by the way, that means that you have 90% of your income left, right? If you were to take a, uh, if your company that you're working for just hits a really bad time and you get a 10% 10% cut, you might look for another job, but if there's no other job, you'll just have to make it work, right? I think most people can make it work. But again, it's not law. Now, you're not sinning if you are that 5% of people that just can't afford 10%. You're not in sin. So I don't want to place any guilt on you again this isn't a law but on the other hand if you're not that five percent you're not necessarily fulfilling the principle of giving god the first and the best by just giving ten percent so you're not necessarily fulfilling quote unquote the law you're not you're not necessarily 
actually fully obeying the way you ought to, the command to give, if you're just giving 10%. Not necessarily. Because some can probably give more. Now, whatever the specific amount, God calls you to honor him from your wealth, not under compulsion, but with joy. 2 Corinthians 9, 7, each one must do just as he has purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Whether it's your first and best attentions, thoughts, affections, plans, priorities, energy, time, effort, or money, God is worthy of your foremost, your first, and your best. Why? Because it's not about God needing your money. It's about God deserving your honor. You need, Christian, you need to be faithfully giving from the first fruits of your income to the work of the Lord regularly and joyfully. And when you honor God this way, you're not giving him money that he needs. You're showering him with the honor of your highest love, trust, and devotion. After all, Christ gave generously from his riches as well. 2 Corinthians 8, 9. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though being rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. Now, that isn't meant to guilt trip the Christian into giving. It's meant to motivate and to put things in perspective. Oh, reflect, Christian, on how much the Lord has given and given up to save you. Think of the, the immense eternal riches he left behind in heaven to come for you. Can you honor him back? Can you love him back? Can you honor him from your wealth? Trust that you would show the Lord the place that he has in your life uh, through this practical way. And that that would just be one of the multitude of ways that you honor Christ in your life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, for your word and how you shepherd us and guide us. Lord, I pray for your dear church that we would be obedient to you, that uh, if changes need to be made, Lord, that they wouldn't be short-term changes, but that we would make life, life decisions, Lord. That we would make commitments to you. And uh, Lord, help us to take time, maybe even this week, to get alone with you and to...